There are four major themes that go through these, this book. There are lots of themes, but there are four major ones that dominate them. The first one is the supremacy of Jesus as king and conqueror. The book begins with a high Christology. Christology is a big fancy word to say the thinking about Christ. Ology is thinking or words or study and Christ. So this is, it's a high Christ thinking. And he appears, like I already mentioned, chapter 1, as this divine. I mean, metaphorically speaking, it is scary. I mean, he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. His eyes are on fire. He's glowing in pure white. His feet are bronze, all the better to stomp on you with. That's what bronze represents in the ancient world. This is a scary image. But at the same time, it's in the context, I've already come and died for you. I've already come and died for you. He starts out with a very high Christology. And then he constantly establishes to the seven churches that Jesus is your king. And he is what you owe devotion to. And if you are devoted to him, he will give you a crown as co-heir for those who are victorious. Only a king can do that. And then when he gets into 4 and 5, you see Yahweh and Jesus enthroned in one of the most amazing pictures ever in the entire Bible. And then the whole world is being judged for not embracing the Lamb. And then it ends with the throne of God coming down to earth. This is the theme that you're going to see over and over and over again, that Christ is not just coming to conquer the world, to take it and own it and make us his new slave, but to redeem us and establish it and um, to make it good again. The next theme is The Tale of Two Cities, which is a great book. It's a hard-to-read book, but it's a great book. It's The Tale of Two Cities. And in this, it starts in Isaiah chapter 1 through 4. In Isaiah chapter 1 through 4, God talks about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the old Jerusalem. It's the defiled Jerusalem. It's the prostitute Jerusalem. It is the lofty city. It's high and lofty, but it's empty. These are the words that are used of it. And God talks about how he's going to bring a fire of judgment that will come and burn this city down to the ground and will leave nothing behind. We know that as the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They will come. But he says, like all fires that burn, and destroy, they also purify and cleanse. And in the ashes of this, it will cleanse the city and allow for a new Jerusalem, the virgin daughter of Yahweh, to emerge and be purified. And then it's out of this that he then talks about this new Jerusalem. This is where John's going to pick up. The old city is Jerusalem. It's Babylon. It's the seven hills. It's the kingdom of the beast. It's the prostitute that rides the beast. But the new Jerusalem is the virgin daughter of chapter 12 that is pregnant with the Messiah and the dragon is constantly trying to eat it and destroy it, but then eventually is protected by God and lifted up and brought into heaven and stands before God as an uncountable number of people. And then eventually the bride prepared for the Lamb, comes down to earth with the Lamb to be married in the marriage of heaven and earth in chapters 21 through 22. These themes go through, so look for that theme as we go through. But 
it's not just portrayed as two women, it's portrayed as two mountains. And the two mountains are what we know as the Tower of Babylon and the Cosmic Mountain of God. This mountain of God that everybody will be established on with God. This is called the Cosmic Mountain. And in ancient theologies and the pagan religions, the first thing that appears in creation is a cosmic mountain that rides up into the sky. You know as Mount Olympus in Greek mythology, and the gods live up there, and, and nobody else is allowed up there because the gods don't like you, they don't want to be with you, and they use you as slaves to eat your sacrifices and stuff, and maybe sometimes even your children and your daughters, and they don't care about you. But when God establishes his first cosmic mountain, it's in the Garden of Eden, and it's, he brings humanity and not only puts them on the cosmic mountain with him, but creates them out of the cosmic mountain, the soil. And then he breathes into them. And there's an intimacy between the human who come out of the cosmic mountain and the human who has the breath of God within him. And the three most important things in all of creation is land, God, and humans. And not necessarily in that order. Yahweh, human, land. But then we lose the Garden of Eden. We're no longer the cosmic mountain. But unlike the pagan gods are like, we never wanted you here anyways, and we're not going to bring you here ever. God says, I'm not happy with that. So he comes down on Mount Sinai and makes that his new cosmic mountain. But we're told that he came from Mount Seir and Midian, which used to be his cosmic mountain. And then one day he will go with them into Jerusalem and make Mount Zion his cosmic mountain. And the point is that every mountain is God's cosmic mountain because he is not limited by regions like the pagan gods. And he goes there. And he, and he doesn't stay up there lofty and high. He speaks to the Jews at Mount Zion. And then he gives them the tabernacle to dwell with them as the pillar of the Shekinah glory of God. And then he goes with them into Jerusalem and hangs out with them. And then eventually he sends Jesus to actually walk with us. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit. On the flip side, the cosmic mountain is the beast of the world. It's the seven hills of Rome. It's the beast that rises up. It's, it's enslaving and it's destructive. It's Babylon. It's the woman that rides the beast. You have these two mountains, and one is lofty and high and just wants to crush you. And the other one is high, but then lowers himself, becoming even a servant and a human in order to make you a part of the cosmic mountain. And this is what the, the, the prophets meant by make all the roads straight and level all the mountains and raise up all the valley for a way to the Lord has been prepared for us. It means that God is going to get rid of all social statuses, anything that gets in the way. Isaiah, in the middle of chapter 2, it talks about him inviting everybody to this cosmic mountain of Yahweh, this future day that we'll all be able to return back to the mountain. And so these are the two mountains that are portrayed in the Bible. But they're not just mountains, they're also women. And we kind of already talked about this. All throughout the First Testament, when Jerusalem is evil or bad, or the nations are called the prostitute or the whore, they defile themselves with idols and all this kind of stuff. And then, but, the, the, but Zion, the true believers, are Mount Zion, the virgin daughter of Israel, but also is portrayed as the bride of God and the Lamb. And remember, these are metaphors. They're, they're portrayed as pure and righteous and that they don't stray from their, their husband or they don't stray from their, their father in this kind of a sense. And when God is using this language, he doesn't mean it in a sexual, literal prostitution, a sexual morality kind of sense. He means it in an idolatry sense. And the book of Hosea is a powerful book. Um, in Hosea, 
he, he takes Hosea and he sends him out to marry a woman by the name of Gomer and says, bring her in. But then she goes out and sleeps with people. And God says, keep pursuing her and redeeming her and bringing her back and never, ever, ever, ever give up on her ever because that's my love for you. Because ultimately speaking, it's not really just about your behavior. It's about your devotion, your idolatry. And what God is most interested in is not exactly our behavior and right conduct. He does care about that. Don't get me wrong. That's what you're striving for. That's the ideal. But what he ultimately cares about is your devotion to him and your abstaining from idolatry in any form. Your work, your career, your looks, your skill, your artistic ability, your athletic, whatever it is. That's what he cares about more than anything. There's that idea that morality and behavior will begin to follow as you draw close to God. The Bible develops this in a polarity of what's called wisdom literature. John is wisdom literature. The Gospels feel a lot like wisdom literature. First, second, third John are definitely wisdom literature. And Revelation is too. So what is wisdom literature? Wisdom literature is this is the wise thing to do that will end in good things. And this is the unwise thing that will end in bad things. But in wisdom literature, it's always black and white. There's no gray. The the righteous do this, period. And there is nothing wicked in them. And they will inherit eternal life, right? That kind of stuff. And the wicked do this, and there is nothing righteous in them, and they will go this route. And it's very black and white. There's no middle ground. There's no gray. And sometimes when you read wisdom literature, especially if you've read 1 John, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. And you're like, ah, I got a little darkness in him, me. Because this is the ideal. We know that we got a lot of gray in us. That's the narratives. That's when we're introduced to Gideon, who praises God, but also skins his people alive. We're introduced to David, who praises God, but then also cuts the head off of Goliath and carries it around as a trophy. And we're introduced to these people who have Joshua, who's a great man of God, trust in them, but doesn't consult God to make a really big decision about what to do with the enemy. Okay, Moses, who's a great man of God, but then gets really angry and strikes the rock and is kicked out of the garden of the, uh, out of the promised land. That's the gray area. What you have is the narrative is just gray, and it helps us understand that God still loves us and works in us and can still use us even though we're a mixed bag. But the wisdom literature helps you understand what where the bar is set. And ultimately speaking, if you want to get in the kingdom of God, you have to be totally in the light with no darkness. That's why John then follows up and says, thank God for the blood of Jesus Christ. We have an advocate in Christ. And so wisdom literature is what you're striving for. This is, what it, this is the perfect ideal that I'm striving for. And this is the corruption that I need to get as far away as possible. And there is no gray area, so it's very clear in our mind what we're moving away from and what we're moving towards. The narrative gives us the gray area to help us know that we're still loved by God and we can still be used to him, even though we don't seem to be, we feel somewhere in the middle. And so for John in the book of Revelation, it's wisdom. You're either in this new city or you're in the old city. You're either in the new heaven and earth or you're outside with the liars and the dogs and all that kind of stuff. And it's very black and white. And that makes it hard to interpret too, on top of all the metaphors and all that kind of stuff. And so this is the tale of two cities. That brings us to the next theme, which is the judgment and redemption. And all throughout the book of Revelation, God is obviously judging. That's what we tend to hear about all the time. God's coming to destroy the world. God's coming to nuke it. God is coming to, like, destroy these evil power. Yes, he is. But 
God's first and foremost interest in judging the world is not just to punish them for their evil, but to redeem them. God is always interested in redeeming. And many of you are parents here. Okay? You have been or you are parents. And, and, and by have been, I mean like where there are little tykes in your house. And you know that most of the time, like, yes, you can say, dang it, I feel like I defaulted to just punishment and behaviorism more than I would like because that's just what we tend to default as a human. But you also know that deep down inside that you were punishing them or judging them or disciplining or rebuking them or whatever because you wanted them to realize that there was a better way for them that would produce greater life and hope and love and connection with people than if they did what they kept doing, right? And that's the great desire. Even as a parent, even us as flawed and sinful get that we're punishing and judging, I don't even like the word punishment, disciplining, rebuking, correcting, for the sake of them seeing a better way that will bring greater fruit. And so most of the time when God is judging, it's not just, ha ha, now I'm going to attack you and destroy you for what you did to creation and other people. There is a little bit of that. I mean, he's a just God. But a lot of it is also to wake them up, to wake them up to the fact, and this is the most important thing, when all hell breaks loose, and it will in this book, on you, and you go to your gods and your money and your house and your physical health and your athletic skills or your musical skill or your, your friends or your church or whatever, do not answer your problems, then all you're left with is to go back to God or to seek him out for the first time. Hope is that you will then, there are no atheists in Foxhole. Now, that's not true. There are lots of atheists who shake their fist at God no matter what happens to them. But the hope is that that's what would happen. And over and over again, when God judges them, he keeps saying over again, but they did not repent and they did not cry out to the Lamb. Because that's the cry and the desire of his heart, is that they would cry out to him and embrace him as Father Abba. This does two things. It shows you his heart for why he's judging them, but it also shows you how evil they really are and why he's just in doing it. And so you will see this theme over and over again where God's greatest desire is to redeem humanity. The purpose of Yahweh's judgment is not just to eliminate evil, but to bring people to salvation. This is seen in the judgments of the seals, trumpets, and bowls, which always end with the announcement of the coming salvation for people of the world. God doesn't just give judgments and then say, screw you, you're done now. But he's giving the judgments, and it's always followed by a call for repentance that will lead to their salvation and their redemption in Christ. That is always the ultimate purpose. As Babylon is destroyed and the dragon and the beasts are thrown in the lake of fire, Yahweh's people are finally free from all that is wicked and can go on to full, complete salvation, the dwelling with Yahweh. So not only is he judging the evil and the sin of the world to encourage you to leave it behind and come to him so you can experience life, but he's also judging the evil in the world to free the world of that evil so you can live in a world where there is none of that anymore, nothing that will threaten you and seek to destroy you. The removal of evil is an expression of his love for his people, for only when they are free from wickedness can they live with Yahweh in life and peace and joy. And the last theme is heaven and earth coming together. The merger. The next one is the marriage of heaven and earth. In the very beginning of creation, God created the material realm within the spiritual realm. 
and the Garden of Eden was there. And on the six days, it's a seven-day creation week, not a six-day creation week. In the six days, God physically created a world. But it's not complete until the seventh day because seven is the number of completion. Six actually represents incompletion, flawed, lacking, because it's one short of seven. It's incomplete. Now, he kept saying it is good, it is good, it is good, but it's not complete. On the seventh day, it says that God rested. All the language of the garden is a fence with God in it and a tree and light, which is exactly what the articles of the tabernacle look like. And what God is creating, he actually uses the same words and the same vocabulary to describe the Garden of Eden as a tabernacle. On the seventh day, he enters into the tabernacle and he rests in it. And that's when creation becomes complete. That's when creation becomes complete. Because other than that, it's just a nice model that you built on the dresser collecting dust. Now, don't get me wrong. I love building models and I love doing it. But in the end, that's all it is. But until he enters into it, it's not complete. In the ancient world, they would often build these temples and then they would bring the articles of the furniture in each day. They would bring the light in first and then they would bless it and they would bring another thing in the next day and bless it all the way through six days. On the seventh day, they would bring the idol in and enthrone it and do a ceremony to sanctify the temple. And that's exactly what he's doing the creation week. The difference is it's not this inanimate idol that can do nothing for you. It is a living being who is descending into creation to dwell with us and to give us life. And the breath that is in him is the breath in us, for lack of a better way of saying it. And so that's how it begins. When Adam and Eve sinned, they're kicked out of the presence of God. And this is where creation, the fall, it's literally a fall. The material realm falls out of the spiritual realm. And I don't mean like it's literally falling in a cosmic universe, outer space kind of a sense, but it's falling in a separation, divorce kind of a sense. And so not only that, not only are heaven and earth ripped apart, but then we can no longer be intimately in the same relationship with God. And as a result, then God says to the woman and the man, you're going to have conflict with each other, and you're going to have conflict with creation. But not only that, dying you will die, he says. Because then there's going to be a day that your body and your spirit, that are one thing, God created you to be body and spirit. And it's going to be ripped apart from each other. And we know that's not good because that's called death. And it's called a curse. And Christ died in order to get us out of death. The, all these divorces, the divorces of our relationship with people, the divorce from creation, the earth and the soil, the divorce of heaven and earth, and the divorce of our body and our spirit one day are not good. They're not good. And you need to understand something that the ultimate goal is not to die and go to heaven. That's not the finalization of your salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to heretic on you. When you die, you will go to heaven. And when you die, it's going to be awesome. You're going to no longer have sin in your life. And you're going to be closer and more intimately in the presence of God than you ever have been. And that will be beautiful, and it will be awesome. And to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But not all of you is there. Your body is worm food. If somebody ripped your arms off, you would feel very much pain. You would feel very much a loss for the rest of your life. 
And you would think about that loss forever until you die. If somebody rips your entire body off your spirit, that's who you are. That's how you're lacking. And yes, your spirit is in the presence of God without sin, but your body's not there. And God created us to be physical, tangible creatures. And if that body didn't matter, then why did he give it to you to begin with? And here's the other reason that you know that it's the most, not the most, but it's it's the other half of the most important part of you, is that Paul says that without the resurrection, our faith is futile and empty and dumb. And this is what the early church fathers have um, said. Where did you, what did Christ become but a human? When did you first hear about Christ but in the body? How did you become saved but in the body? How did you become more Christ-like and learn about him but in the body? So the body is utmost importance and is the body that we long awaited to be returned to us in the resurrection. It is not until the resurrection that our salvation is complete. Paul and the epistle writers never, ever, ever, ever talk about going to heaven as the completion of your salvation. It talks about the resurrection of your body and the second coming of Jesus Christ as the completion of your salvation. Yes, it is much better now that you know Christ with the Holy Spirit in you before it was that you did not know him, but you still have sin in your life and you're not in the full presence of God. Yes, it will be much better when you're in heaven with Christ with no sin in his presence, but you still don't have your body. It is not until heaven and earth come back together that you're rejoined with your body that's when your salvation is complete. And we use big fancy words in our church of justification. I now born again in the spirit, better than life without the spirit. Sanctification, I'm becoming more like Christ. And then glorification, when I'm resurrected back into my body. And we talk a lot about justification and sanctification, but not a lot. And that idea of going to heaven, I can't wait until I go to heaven. No offense. I'm not judging or rebuking anybody. I'm looking forward to heaven, but the idea of that is the primary focus that I can't wait until I die and go to heaven because everything's going to be better then, then, period. And sometimes I hear Christians say, and who cares what happens to this because God's going to nuke it anyways, is Gnosticism. And it was a cult that John wrote against in the First Testament, Second Testament. It's dualism which is what Jude and Peter wrote against in the Second Testament. What we are looking forward to is our resurrection. And the book of Revelation ends in chapter 21 and chapter 22, and it says, And behold, the kingdom of God came to earth, and God came down to earth and dwelt with us. And the Lamb came down to the earth, and we did not need a temple because the Lamb is our temple. And he dwelt with us in our resurrected bodies. And that is when the marriage of heaven and earth come together, the marriage of our body and spirit come back together, and then our marriage between each other and creation is restored. And now we can truly say we are complete in our full relationship with God. And that is the theme that you're going to see going all throughout here. And you're going to see this in the foremost where you're going to be taken up into heaven and you're going to see angels And when they speak, their words happen on earth. And when they throw things from heaven, they go to earth. And when people are affected on earth, they go up into heaven. And they're going to link. That's what angels are. They are links between heaven and earth. They are the bridge. And Jesus is the greater link. 
and the Holy Spirit is the greater link. But he still uses the angels. And they're going to keep interacting back and forth and linking back and forth until they create so many threads between these two tapestries that eventually the book ends with the tapestry being pulled together. And that is the ultimate goal. So yes, it's going to be awesome when we go to heaven. But that's not the final destination. The final destination is coming back here. And we'll talk about this later, but he's not nuking this planet. Nor did he nuke your body when you became a believer. He's restoring it. He's redeeming it. He's taking it back. Any questions? Let you chew on that? So structure. What is the structure of the book? We don't really have any idea. Revelation's confusing. And by structure, like, yeah, I just gave you an outline, and you can say, but, Corey, there's, there's seals, and then there's trumpets, and there's bulls, and isn't that structure? Ah, for those who've read it, there's also a science where John's like, sometimes it feels like he's like an ADHS child, right? ADHS is in attention deficit. Hey, shiny. <laughs> um, so here's the thing. The idea is he is going to constantly give you this little bit, and then you're going to get right to the last seal. He's like, oh, by the way, let's talk about this over here. And then we'll talk about this here. And he's going to mix up so much that sometimes you don't know whether we're in the present or the past or whatever. And so when he's all over the place, is he he structuring this in a chronology sense? No, definitely not. I mean, even the pure chronologists know that they can't really be pure. They want to, and they try to, but they have to admit that they can't because it's too hard. Okay, there's a big fancy word called recapitulation, where he goes back and retells things with different emphasis. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> is, he, is he structuring on theology? Is he structuring on geography or whatever? Like, there, nobody really knows. And so the best probably structure for is literary ideas. Probably the best structure here is literary ideas where he's developing these literary literary ideas. And even though it feels like he's going ADHS on you, it's still linked in somehow with these themes. And this is why it's so important that we understand the themes. Um, So we 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 can follow the tendril of the theme to this aside so that we can come back again to the main idea. Think of it more like a spider webbing than a sequential outline kind of a thing. And that's how the book of Hebrews is structured, too. The Hebrew, Hebrews is actually, it actually has structure, but it's less of a sequential thing like Romans, and it's more like a wheel spoke, where it just keeps, it starts with Christ and keeps going off of him and coming back and off and coming back. And John might be doing a lot more like that, except Hebrews is still, well, it's illogical, and so it's easy to follow, where Revelation is dreamlike and fantasy and metaphors and symbology so it's a little harder to trace the structure so it is difficult to know what the structure here what you have is you have this main focus where you have this it feels like sequential structure where he's like seal one seal two seal three but then he goes off and does this aside some people call it interlude but we'll talk about that later when we get to chapter seven that will be our first aside but then he comes back and it's hard to know, is this a site a, pra- a past thing? Is it a present thing? And then, then when, you get, when you come back to the plagues and you come back, well, now we're in the trumpets now, there's things in the trumpets that start making it feel like, wait a minute, I think the trumpets are just the seals all over again from a different perspective. 
And there's other people who are like, but no, he's counting off sequentially, so it can't be. This is the second set of three coming after that. And so the, you just, the structure has to be literary. It has to be literary. There has to be, it's got to be based on themes and ideas. And so it's kind of like how you can tell a story. Women are really good at doing this. And I don't mean this in a sexist bad thing, but they'll be like, hey, so the other day I went to the grocery store and I was going to the grocery store and was like, saw the broccoli. Do you know broccoli is on sale now? And da 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 And like, you know who told me about that? Oh, yeah. And I remember that Becky told me that. And like, right? But then they somehow like spiral back, right? As they get really, really far off, then they come back to Becky and they come back on this sale and they come back to broccoli and they come back being in the aisle. And oh, by the way, then I saw, and then they get to the story, right? And so that feels like more of what Revelation is doing as it's telling this idea. And so you've got to track. You've ever had that conversation? You're like, oh my gosh, how did we get this point now in conversation? And you try to trace it back to where you go. That's the structure of Revelation. And that's what makes it so much fun, right? It's hard to know. So, and, and, and then not only that, he's re- re- recapitulating. So to give you an idea of recapitulation, Recapitulation is recycling or retelling the same thing again. And it can come in two different ways. It can come from, I'm going to retell you the thing again, but really focus deeper on this thing. Or I'm going to focus, I'm going to retell you again, but come from a different perspective, a different camera angle. So the Gospels are a great example of recapitulation. Matthew takes you through the life of Christ, emphasizing how Christ is the long-awaited Messianic king who's coming to establish his throne on earth. Then Mark comes along and he tells you the ex- almost the exact same stories. There's a few that he adds and a few that he takes away, but mostly exactly the same. And he goes through the whole story again, but from a different street corner angle. It's like watching a car accident in an intersection and you have four different people on four different street corners and they tell you what happens and it's the same car accident, but they see different angles. And so me on this street corner, I just see the car get rear-ended and da-da-da-da. But I didn't see the guy get ejected out of the window because I couldn't see that side of the car, but the guy in the other corner did. And so they, then you start piecing it together. And so Mark, Mark retells it with Jesus as the suffering servant emphasis. And then Luke comes and retells the whole thing again. And he adds a lot more new stuff, but it's still pretty much the same story. But his emphasis is on Jesus as the perfect um, human and the wisest human. And then John comes along and he retells a lot. But he does a little bit of both, where he recapitulates with the same story from a different angle, but then goes a little bit deeper on some things and emphasizes things by emphasizing Jesus, the divine God. And so, or you can have recapitulation where you have Genesis 1, and he goes through the whole creation a week, but then you get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Yes, chapters are in the wrong places. And he starts the whole story again, but this time he says, never mind about the first five days of creation. I'm just going to focus and zero in on the creation of humans and how I placed them in the garden. But he's still retelling you the creation of humans, but he's eliminating everything else and going way more detailed. That's recapitulation, is when you recycle or retell things, either with a different, same exact same thing with a different emphasis, or this same thing, but you're excluding a lot of things and going way deeper and more detailed on something else because that's the most important thing to you. And so this is what John is doing. And so one of the things that scholars debate is how much is recapitulation, how much is not? We know some of it is. Every, regardless of whether what view you take on Revelation, everybody agrees that chapter 12 
with this story of the dragon chasing the woman and giving birth to Jesus and them dying, taking it. Everybody agrees it's recapitulation because it's obvious. It's Jesus, right? And that's already happened for John and everybody in the original audience. But then you get to like, but the bulls, are they recapitulation? The two witnesses that breathe fire and stuff, are they? And how much are they? And da, 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 da. And are they past recapitulation or present or future? Like, and that's where it gets difficult. So that's why we need to focus on the themes. If we, we, if we keep glued to the themes, that will keep our bearings. That'll keep our bearings. And so that's what we need to focus on as we go through. But it is obvious that there's no chronological order here. There are some things, I'm not saying there's nothing that's chronological or sequential, but that's not the focus of John. That's not the focus of John. And one of the things that you need to understand is, even as we go through these chapters, it's interesting that the vast majority of the recapitulation when it does happen keeps ending on the coming of Christ. So here's the outline. This is my best attempt at an outline based on, uh, listen, every single commentator has a completely different outline. This is what we're going to be following as we go through. That's the end for the introduction on the book as a whole.